0: Bible reading today is from John chapter 12 and I'll be reading verses 1 to 19 so if you've got your Bible you can open it up otherwise it'll be on the screen. Six days before the Passover Jesus arrived at Bethany where Lazarus lived whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining And came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day the great crowd The next day the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your King is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had, had been written about him and that they had been done and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him, whom he called Lazarus, from the tomb, and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the world has gone after him.
1: Well, keep your Bibles open there. It's a familiar story. How many people are familiar with both of those accounts? How many people actually knew that one came straight after the other? Okay, I confess, I read on to and I thought, oh, okay, that was then. Isn't it great going through the Scriptures, I think, uh, together and and systematically like this so that we actually get the flow uh, for how the Gospel writers were wanting so um, urgently for us to understand who Jesus was and who he now is, and who he will continue to be, so that we might believe in him and have salvation. And uh, this morning, the theme is kind of on on worship. I think uh, it's on worship. And when we gather every Sunday morning like this, you may, we may, you may have heard it, you may have said it, you've probably heard me say it. Uh, we often describe it as our time of worship. We're meeting on Sunday for worship, or we're, we're gathering for worship practice, or we're or whatever it is that we're we're doing. Which, of course, is we know is not quite right. It's not the entire picture, because all of our lives is actually worship, every area of our life. Um, Our response to what God has done for us, to what we know about him, what we um, have heard uh, that he does and that he continues to do and has done in Christ on our behalf. And so this morning's um, account from John's Gospel shows us some different motivations around worship, the worship of Jesus. Uh, We see in this particular house, the house of Simon, we're told, uh, three people, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus, and they're all giving honour in various ways. They're all worshipping Jesus. And and the second part of our reading, uh, the story of, uh, is kind of more an account of of the crowds worshipping Jesus. Um, And that's what we're going to be looking at as well. Um, So just to recap... uh, It hasn't been long since Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. You remember Evan preached on this two Sundays ago? Uh, And the resurrection of Lazarus was, as we remember, the seventh sign or miracle that John uh, decides to record of the many, uh, almost countless signs that Jesus actually performed. uh, But the seventh of uh, the miraculous sign in his gospel. And um, uh, this is by far the greatest, wouldn't you say? He's been building up to all these different signs, healing people, um, the lame man, making the blind man see, um, changing the water to wine. This isn't in order, but uh, you know the seven of them that we've been looking at over months now. This is by far the greatest. Literally, a dead man brought back to life. And well and truly dead, too, which is part of Jesus' plan. Waiting for him to die, his friend... And be completely dead. Why? So that he might raise him from the dead and point to whose? To point to his own resurrection life that is soon to come. So no doubt this has caused quite a stir, it's kind of like the um, the peak. And right now in John's Gospel, things start to take a turn uh, from the end of chapter 12 onwards. In fact, the whole we're about halfway through the Gospel, this whole first half has kind of summarised the three years of Jesus' public ministry, uh, not from his birth, but from uh, when he uh, was baptised and was um, officially commissioned, if you like, or... Um, uh, embarked on the mission God had sent him for right up until his death. The second second part slows right down and it's almost the second half of John is basically what's happened in about a week between this point and his death uh, and then subsequent resurrection. So we know from uh, reading the Bible that after uh, raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus knew that the religious guys were fair and square against him, that the chief priests in particular, some of the Pharisees, they were actually plotting his death and so he retreated. His time had not yet come. And he retreated to the city of Ephraim, a city near the wilderness. Jesus often does this, and it's a good thing to do. But now, just six days before the next uh, most significant uh, festival for the Jewish people, was the, the Passover, uh, this was the time when Jesus was, would actually host the Last Supper before his death and his resurrection, his he, um, resurrection. And for some strange reason, to those who would understand the heat that he's getting from the religious leader, Jesus returns to Bethany. That's where Lazarus lives. Well, right at this point, Jesus knew that in just a few short days, he would be facing the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane, that he would also be facing the brutal execution and unjustified, unfair execution by crucifixion, And not only that that he would be carrying the sins of the world all sins past present and future for those who trust in him the father god as we sung earlier would be turning for a moment turning his back on his own son jesus knew this was pending his time had now come well there are three things in particular in just this moment before things get uh, really busy just in this moment, as Jesus takes some time out in Simon's house, there are three things about worship. Have a look at verse 1. We notice that uh, Jesus is in the home of Simon. He once was a leper, uh, most likely healed by Jesus. Um, it was a place where his friends were, so a place of comfort for him, a place where he felt welcome, a place where he could just rest up and relax. Okay, Jesus, being fully God and fully human, still needed to do that. And uh, you know what? Uh, the thing to learn, uh, the first point about worship is that um, we get to also in our homes create space for jesus a place where jesus can have fellowship with us in our homes and that is an act of worship we too can have homes where jesus is honored where jesus is now the unseen guest but he's here by his spirit and so for those of us who are christians um, what are, what do our christian homes look like what ought our homes look like what can they look like in Christ? Well, it means making him Lord of our home life. It means acknowledging that he is Lord of our homes, that um, not us as parents or the male parent in particular um, or uh, not the children, they're not Lord of the house. That's right, mums and dads, the children are not Lord of the home. Um, Jesus is Lord of the home despite how it can feel. It means that our homes are a place where Jesus uh, can participate with us, that Jesus has space. I know some people really take this to the extreme, and I haven't done it, but I can understand it. um, That They'll actually leave an empty seat at the dinner table, Uh, particularly when the kids are young, just as a reminder that Jesus uh, is here, that in our home Jesus is Lord and he will have room in this space. We're mindful of him. Um, As husbands and wives, what does it mean? to worship Jesus in our homes. Well, it means that we love each other in the way the Bible has instructed us, laying down our lives uh, for our spouse, um, submitting to one another in harmony as uh, equal helpers that God has called and given different roles to and different tasks in the home and to do so uh, out of honouring for Christ. That means as parents that we will actually intentionally speak about Jesus in our home, that we won't leave it to the experts on Sunday, um, that we won't leave it to our school that's a Christian school, that we won't leave it to our um, TBC Kingdom kids alone, but that we ourselves will speak about Jesus, that our kids will hear us understanding Jesus and see that he is actually a person that has pride of place, that he's worthy of honour and worship in our homes. Well, I wonder how many of us do that in our homes. Uh, I know we do to varying degrees, and we often need encouragement. And I trust this serves as that for you parents that are here this morning. This ought to be an encouragement, perhaps an opportunity to realign, to refocus. For Melissa and I, we're on the tail end of uh, any uh, kind of influence, what little influence we have left, we'd like to delude ourselves with. Um, but uh, for many of you, you're in the thick of it right now, and others perhaps you've just started out in your homes. This is an opportunity, it's never too late to start, to honour Jesus in our homes. Well, secondly, we can learn to worship Jesus from the heart. Have a look at verses 2 and 3. We find three different people basically worshipping Jesus in different ways. Martha, Lazarus and Mary. It's interesting to note that each one of these followers of Jesus um, had, had a different passion, they have a different disposition and so they worship Jesus differently. I don't know about you, but I was raised hearing this story. Um, basically there was only one person here that was actually worshipping Jesus, and it was who? Martha. Sorry, it was Mary. <laughs> it wasn't Martha, was it? Martha, Martha, Martha. Um uh, I, I guess I think we're missing the point there. I really do. Think about it. Let's look at Martha to begin with. Dinners made in honor of Jesus, and who's making it? Martha. She's dedicated herself to making this meal and she's serving it. Um, In Luke's account of this same story in Luke chapter 10, uh, we do find this picture of Martha where we get that from, that she's this kind of um, nervous, busy sort of person, uh, distracted by all the things that need to be done and all the tasks and and, uh, and these beautifully wonderful examples of uh, Mary who's sitting humbly at the feet of Jesus is what we should aspire to. That's not the case at all. Mary is not just a worried housekeeper... Martha's not just a worried housekeeper. She has welcomed the guest of honour and she wants everything to be perfect. That's her love language. You know, in modern psychology, perhaps if, uh, if she got to read that book um, about the five love languages, what would be hers? Acts of service. That's what Mary's doing. She's worshipping Jesus. She knows how important he is. She knows this joyful moment that's come into their lives where he's just come to, just to hang out and catch his breath. Um, and so she's worshipping him the best way she knows how to. This is a valid expression of love and devotion to Jesus. Well, what about Lazarus? I don't know about you, but I also was raised, it's a sort of, and maybe I started thinking this myself, knowing my own heart, but <clears throat> Lazarus can be seen as perhaps a little lazy. He's just sitting back, just reclining, it says here, at the table with Jesus. It would be easy to read something negative here. And think that that's what Lazarus is doing. And you could justify it and say, well, he was dead only recently, you know, and he's sort of come back and it's like, hey, Jesus brought me back. Like, I think I'm pretty important as well. I'm just going to recline with him. But that's not necessarily the case. It's certainly what John, not what John is saying either. There is a specific reason why the passage tells us that Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with Jesus. Martha wanted to serve Jesus. Lazarus wanted to enjoy his company. Sit with his friend. Remember, Jesus wept at Lazarus' death. He knew full well what it means to lose a friend. I hope you hear in this that there's nothing wrong with simply enjoying being in the presence of God. Reclining with Jesus is not wasting time, it's not being lazy. There are times and places where we're to be still and know that he is God. In fact, resting in God is what it means to live as Sabbath people. It's not limited to a day any longer. It is in Christ, the Lord of the Sabbath, and that's what, we, that's what we're called to do. We, we get to Sabbath with God in our lives, regularly. But have a look, uh, then look at uh, verse 3, we find the story of Mary and what Mary's doing. And this is a beautifully unique expression of worship of God, of Jesus. She's the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and she was moved with this overwhelming sense of emotion and love and passion for her Lord Jesus. She wanted to demonstrate this in a more dramatic and meaningful way and that's what she did. But in all three of these friends, maybe you can identify in how you worship Jesus. And with all three of them, they enjoyed spending time with him in Simon's house. Martha and Lazarus both loved Jesus and for them their response to him was perfectly normal, but the passage shows us that in Mary's case, this led her Uh, to an act that went way beyond what others had done. Mary takes this 12-ounce jar of refined perfume or ointment. Uh, It's been made from a plant which grows, I believe, only in India. It's called uh, the the essence of nard. And we read that she anointed, she poured the whole lot out upon Jesus' feet. And and then she let her hair hang down and she took her hair and she wiped Jesus' feet with it. This is just a, a, a lavish act of worship. And think about it, the perfume just fills uh, the entire house, the, the, the odour, the smell of this beautiful, expensive uh, ointment. Notice a couple of things about what Mary did in worshipping. First of all, uh, she gave her best to Jesus. You know, that perfume was really valuable. It was about uh, it was 300 denarii and basically earned one denarii a day for the average worker. So it's nearly a year's income, nearly a year's wages And verse 7 tells us that she'd been keeping it for a day uh, to to honour Jesus, knowing that his time would come too. It's very interesting what's going on in Mary's heart. I think she has some insights into what's actually happening. She's very much aware of the significance of this moment and what Jesus is about to face out of all the disciples. And she'd saved this to embalm him, to honour him once he had died. And yet here she is in the moment pouring it out with total abandon, the most valuable possession she owned. I don't know about you, but this really makes me pause and consider, what do I sacrifice? (laughs) What do I pour out that is most valuable to me in a loving act of worship for Jesus? How much are you and I prepared to give up, to sacrifice out of our devotion to him? Well, most clearly, Jesus tells us that if we love him, of course, we will what? We will keep his commands We will love God and we will love others. Uh, Jesus also goes on and says that greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life uh, for their friends. That's to give their very life, the most valuable thing to all of us, let's be honest. Um, And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He gave his own life. He sacrificed himself, poured out his all for us. And so worshipping Jesus from the heart will mean giving him the best that we have. The second thing Mary did is she humbled herself in worship before Jesus. She completely humbled herself. This is a humiliating act, a self-humiliating act, make no mistake. She worshipped Jesus in such a way that she held nothing back um, and that in itself is humility. Um, And and it's actually impossible for us to worship God or think we can worship God with any ounce of uh, pride or non-humility in our lives. If we're thinking of ourselves and our self-importance, of what we deserve and what we're not getting, if we think like that, uh, we cannot at the same time be truly worshiping God and giving Jesus his rightful place and laying down our lives before him in response to him laying down his life for us. Uh, you remember John the Baptist at the peak of his ministry, his public ministry from earlier on in John's Gospel, uh, you know, he's got all these followers just flocking to him in preparation for the coming Messiah. And what does he say when Jesus turns up? He he, he fades away into obscurity. And he says in John 3, verse 30, Jesus must increase while I must decrease. That's a statement of humility. It wasn't much longer after that that John the Baptist was beheaded and that's the last we hear of him. Mary's act to pour out expensive perfume onto someone else's feet is one thing, right? But then to go and wipe it with her hair, you know, in Jesus' day a woman's hair was her glory, perhaps it still is in many uh, of our uh, cultures today as well. By letting down her hair and and, and wiping the excess perfume up with it on Jesus' feet, she's laying down her glory at Jesus' feet. She was giving up her pride. She had no concern for what others in the room uh, thought about it or how they were going to judge her. She was worshipping him. She was honouring him and she was doing so humbly. leads us to the third thing about Mary. She worshipped despite criticism. We encountered Judas Iscariot. You know, this is fascinating. I've always had a slight soft spot for Judas. I felt like, poor fella, you know. And then you read this, before the night of Passover, Jesus was already on to him. This is the one who would betray Jesus, and he, of course, pipes up piously to say, what a waste of precious, valuable commodities. What an economically poor decision to make. He's a money man, of course, and he claimed the perfume could have been sold for all that and he, he probably knew it. But you know, that wasn't what he wanted to do with that perfume and Jesus knew it. Isn't it funny? Jesus goes, uh, you know, you're going to give it to the poor? Really? You haven't given a thing to the poor and you've had very, every opportunity to give things to the poor because you're the money man and instead you've been giving it to yourself. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus, uh, Judas wasn't as all concerned, at all concerned about the poor. There will always be those around us who will say that we're wasting our lives when we worship Jesus, when we pour out our all in worship of him, there'll be those who say that we're wasting our money giving to the church, there'll be people who say we're wasting our money uh, supporting various mission agencies. Militia and I went and got our, uh, a year or so ago, got our, um, our will sort of sorted out um, with, with some lawyers rather than just something we wrote down in the file, in the file. made it legit and one of the things um, we, we thought about was leaving some money uh, for a mission agency. And the look on this lawyer's face, she was sort of like, sorry, who? and she starts Googling them. She's honestly going to do a, a, a like some sort of evaluation check on this organisation. Who are you giving your money to? I'm thinking, seriously, you're the lawyer, just write it down, you know. Uh, and she was, good. And she, oh, look, they look legitimate. Yes, they, they have changed their names, name you know, and they've been around for about 100. Oh, OK, they look, I oh, said, so what do they do? And I got to tell her about it but it's a bizarre thing. People don't understand why you would give to Christian organisations, why you would give to the work of the Lord, why you give to the church. Well, uh, that's going to happen all the time when we worship Jesus. And that's what I love about Mary in this story. She doesn't care what others think. She doesn't care about how public this is or how much it might humiliate her or the fact that there's a greedy guy in the room with them who's going to judge her and vocalise it. She's there to worship Jesus, and she doesn't let anyone get in her way, despite their lack of understanding. But you know what else about Mary's worship of Jesus that that strikes me here? Have a look back in verse 3. We hear that the odour of the perfume filled the whole house. The ointment got into everything. I mean, think about it. Have you ever smashed a bottle of even cheap perfume? Um, You know, like it's going to smell for quite some time. Um, This is saturated in her hair. It's filled the house with its sweet aroma. And that's what true worship does. People with a critical heart and a critical spirit aside, the majority of people will see something marvellous. They'll see something beautiful. They'll see something that they want in on, something that they want to know more about when we worship Jesus lavishly. So we worship Jesus in the home, we worship him from our hearts and thirdly we worship Jesus whenever we can. You know, in verses 7 to 8, this is where Jesus responds to Judas's criticism of Mary's worship. And he rebukes him, he corrects him, and he reminds him that the poor will always be with them, but that they would not always have Jesus with them. I think Mary and Jesus knew what was happening here. Jesus knew that Mary knew that this is really important, that this is the last chance she gets to be with Jesus like this before what he's about to face. The last chance. Whereas Judas doesn't get it, and Jesus knows she gets it. And that's why he rebukes Jesus. And that's why he says, don't worry about all those excuses that you're coming up with. Right? Mary is making the most of the time she has with me. Jesus is speaking about the spontaneous nature, the every day, every part of every day, worship of Jesus. Mary didn't schedule it in. She didn't make a booking. It wasn't like she said, hey, Simon, can we please have Jesus over at this time? And I'm going to do this little special thing and try and can you get him there in that chair so that it'll be all ready? She didn't do that. She didn't have a plan. She did it when the opportunity presented itself. She was ready, she was eager, and she didn't hesitate. Mary was absorbed in worship, and God loves that kind of worship. God loves all kinds of worship. Um, There are always good and many things that happen when we um, organise more formally our worship times together as God's people. That's an important part too. Structured worship is also important. The Apostle Paul writes at length to a wild and ruly uh, church in in Corinth um, who were getting up to all sorts of silly shenanigans in the name of worshipping Christ um, and he re- reminds them to you know be structured and measured and thoughtful in your worship that's important too but so also is natural responses for our love for Jesus not just flicking off between Monday and Saturday but seeing Jesus at, at every opportunity in every point in our lives well many people have misunderstood what Jesus says here you know he says the poor are always with us um, somehow they think that, um, that Jesus is, uh, you know, pro- we get the excuse now to prioritise worshipping Jesus over looking after the poor. Well, that, that's, that would be a very terribly inappropriate and completely wrong way of understanding what Jesus is saying here. That's a misunderstanding. We know from Jesus' life, right through the Scriptures, that he always prioritised, in fact, and identified and aligned his mission with the vulnerable, the poor the desolate and the broken because they're the ones who get Jesus. They're the ones who need Jesus and that goes for all of us who aren't poor. We at some point must come when we come to Jesus as broken people, realising that spiritually we're poor, that we are sinful, that we are proud people and that we need his forgiveness. So what Jesus is saying here, he was always concerned for the poor. He's merely pointing out a simple reality when he says that in verse 8. He's saying, in this context, right now, in this moment, what Mary is doing is beautiful and it's profound, and the poor and all those other good things, they're always going to be there. Jesus knows the hearts of people, so he understands the greed of humanity. He understands that there will always be those who will be poor because of the greed of humanity. He understands that this isn't going to change anytime soon, even though he's come uh, to give his life for the sins of the world that create this kind of unjust environment. So he says, yeah, sure, you've got plenty of time to do that. And in your case, Judas, <laughs> what's stopping you, mate? You've even stolen money to be able to give away. Now, what Jesus is saying, that we must worship and serve him whenever we have the opportunity, in the present, despite the enormous need and urgency that's always around us. You see, Mary wouldn't always have this opportunity to anoint the Lord's feet with this perfumed oil. And so she had to do it when the opportunity presented. He wouldn't be with them for much longer. He'd be captured and he'd be led away. Well, there you have it, three different kinds of worship by three of Jesus' closest friends, Martha, Lazarus and Mary. And they serve as examples to us of what it means to worship Jesus, to honour him and to praise him. But you know, as we close this morning, did you notice that familiar account of the crowds a little bit later on, the next day in fact? The crowds that gather to worship Jesus in public. Um, You know when the song Hosanna came out? It was in the 90s, I think, early 90s maybe. Hosanna, Hosanna. You might know the words, you probably couldn't recognise the tune, but anyway. um, That chorus, it came out, I don't know, why, but it used to sit like it's great. I sing the praises, and that's what we do. But I used to think, you know what? I think that's the same crowd who less than a week later were also calling out, crucify him, crucify him. Seriously, not all of them, but certainly a number of them. You know, th- this is the same crowd, and, and the scripture tells us here, John tells us, that they the crowd swarmed because of what they had heard had happened to Lazarus. Here's someone whose final miracle. According to John, the greatest miracle was to raise someone from the dead. Oh, i got to get me some of that. Oh, I want need to see this. Oh, all hail the king. All hail the king. This is the one. And yet Jesus fulfills this great prophecy. He, he comes in, in this majestic parade into Jerusalem, but he's on a donkey, right? A king ought to be on some kind of chariot, but he's on a donkey, which ought to have told those with ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand that Jesus is God's Messiah, is going to be completely different to what the nation of Israel was expecting and who are still expecting. Completely different. Jesus rides in on a donkey. This is a prophecy from Zechariah. Praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. They're quoting scripture and they're praising and they're worshipping. For that moment, beautiful, sure and wonderful and Jesus doesn't rebuke anyone. He accepts it, he fulfills the scripture as he rides in on the donkey and he continues but this is the same crowd who, were, at very least, they may not have been the ones screaming out, crucify him, crucify him, but where were they six days later? Where were they? They were scurrying off like Peter and the other disciples. The only ones that actually stood by Jesus were the women, incidentally. Men all scurried off in fear to protect themselves. You know, for all the amazing things that Jesus is and does, most especially his death on the cross is the pinnacle what he did for us to redeem us so that we could know God as our heavenly father. And my prayer for us as a church, my prayer for myself as a father and a husband is that we would worship God in our homes, that we would worship him from our heart, whatever that looks like to you, however he's wired you and created you, and whatever passions he's given you, and that we'd also express to him whenever we have the opportunity his enormous worth his immeasurable value for what he's done for us on the cross. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the faithful witness, the Apostle John, who wrote down carefully what he saw and what he had heard. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd take these words as we've expounded upon them and proclaim them, that you would settle in our hearts what is truth, what is your word, what we need to hear today. What we don't need to hear today, we ask, Father, that we'd forget. We thank you that we can come before you as broken individuals, as people who struggle, as people who are far from perfect, and yet we lay ourselves humbly in adoration at your feet, the perfect Saviour, the perfect God, the perfect King, the perfect man who lived amongst us. Help us uh, to do... Uh, these lives of worship that you've called us to do because we declare you are truly worthy and Father, we want the fragrance of our worship to permeate not only through our homes but into our streets, into our workplaces, into our community, into our state, our country and the world. We ask that you go before us in that and uh, quicken us to see where you're at work in the world that we might bring the living hope of Jesus and faith in him to those that need to hear it. We ask this in his name.
0: Amen. Thanks, guys.